Hey, you're listening to Block Thinking with Werner Puchert. I am late. Yes, I know. I missed my Monday deadline. But the show is here. It's in your feed. And hopefully it's something that you'll enjoy. Today I speak to Olga Kuschelis, a good friend of mine. She is part of a design team in Berlin that run the agency called cultural.design. And if you're like me and go, what the hell is cultural design? Don't worry. I've got you covered. This is the episode where we talk about what culture means in design owning a business, blockchain, yes, the meaning of blockchain in design or the potential of it, Berlin, and then something I'm really passionate about, art. This is a very rich episode. Then before we dive into the episode, a little bit of promotion. My friend Andy Wojnarowski, I've mentioned before, is doing this awesome design thinking training course on Udemy, and he has offered listeners of Block Thinking a very gracious discount. So if you head over to Udemy, Search for Andy Wojnarowski, I've got a link in the show notes, and when you sign up, use the code BLOCKTHINKING, so block with a C, thinking, one word, and you'll get a generous discount for signing up for his course. And of course, of course, um, he'd love to hear your feedback, so rate, share, give him hell, and I hope you enjoyed the course. I'll stop now and let's jump into the interview. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Olga Skocelas and I'm a co-founder and design strategist at the agency called Cultural Design. We are based in Berlin and running for more than one year now. Olga, thanks for joining me in this episode of Block Thinking. I mean, I Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, we've We're been excited. friends for so long, right? I mean, we've known each other now for, I think, on and off, like for three years. Yeah, that's true. And I never thought of actually interviewing you. I'm I'm a bit of a bum because we've been running around at the castle of extraordinary experiences, and you know, you 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 and your uh, partner are doing such great work in that event. We never actually thought like, hey, let's sit down and have a conversation. But I get to do it now. Yay! Thank you for inviting me. Cool. So, Olga, I always ask my guests this, right? And this is kind of a random question, but I think it's important. Is um, what is your value proposition? Why why should people work with you? Why is it good to have Olga in your team? I think it would be related to my studies and my background. So I am a cultural economist, which is a pretty unusual title to have. It means that I'm, I'm specializing in being the intermediary between creativity, art, and this kind of ambiguity and like very structured, rational, financial business world. So bridging between creativity and commerce. And this is what I'm actually doing also as a design strategist. I think this is going to be one of those podcasts that you're going to be teaching me a lot of stuff because I went through your profile. I'm going like... I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. So there's going to be a lot of learning for me here. But before we do that, you come from a little village, or it's not a really a village, right? It's Suvalki. It's a city. It's a it has city. the status of a city. Yeah. Man, I, like I just offended half of Poland now. <laughs> yeah, I come from this small city called Suvalki. It is actually a pretty famous city in Poland for like the coldest temperature it has all all around the year. Yeah, it's a, it's a city in, in northeast corner of Poland, just next to the border of Lithuania. Actually, also, it's pretty famous in the international community as like a Suwałki Gap, I believe it's called, because of the geopolitical situation we are in. And um, yeah, it's it's a small town. So I, I grew up there. 
And when I was, when I finished my high school exams, I decided to travel and like live this nomadic life and live in different places around Europe and the world. So I started with the UK. I started in a business school in Aberystwyth University. And uh, then I moved and did my exchange in Denmark for one year. I came back got my degree and then I went to Rotterdam in the Netherlands to the Erasmus University. And this is where I did my master's in cultural economics. Nice. And, you know, like, what does this mean? I mean, for me, it's very complicated. Yeah. So cultural economics, basically, it's the economics of creativity. So how can you apply the normal economics, economic models to the arts, to the creative industries? And, and so you have to mix it up with like cultural theories, with sociology. So it's a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, so if I had to give an example, we could, for example, study what is the value of a jazz festival in um, Berlin. And then you have to translate it into economic values. And, and that's like a lot of fun. And I am now working with design. I also feel that it's exactly, it's exactly the same principle. It's about explaining creativity to business terms and rationalizing that for CEOs and the managers. That's super important, right? Is the core of the economic element actually profitability and finance and that kind of stuff? Or is it broader? Yes. So you have the economic value, the financial value, but you also have social value or like individual value that it's fun, for example. And then you have to like translate that into how would we benefit from investing in this social value or in this individual value. And do you think that we are, and when I say we, the design community, do we understand the value of economics in design? I think we have had this need for a long time to, as designers, to be able to justify our design decisions, like even in terms of aesthetics, with with all the testing and simply like user testing or A-B testing, we are striving for measuring and giving quantitative outcomes of the design. So that's ultimately translating creativity and your why why is your website blue into like specific data points. That makes sense, right? So it kind of validates it a little bit and uh, makes the, the high-end guys and the business guys also understand exactly. what the value is. Cool. But when we talk culture, it starts getting really interested. interesting. Mm-hmm. So, but first of all, um, you're the co-owner of culture.design. Can you tell me a little bit about the business, where it started, what's the business about? So when I moved to Berlin, I started uh, working at this sharing economy startup, which was basically a sharing economy model for electronics. So you could subscribe or rent devices like drones, iPhones, VR glasses, etc. So anything that was new to the market, we were making it available to basically try or to subscribe. And uh, I met Chris there, and he was a creative director and I was a researcher. So I was doing research on users, UX research, brand research, market research. Like I was really like all kind of research. We met there and we were collaborating a lot. And uh, at some point we were, we got tired with the startup world. As one and we do, decided yeah. to start our own company. <laughs> and do a startup. Ironically. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the idea of Cultural design came from this exact idea that I am a cultural economist and Chris is a designer. So it's a collaboration between those two two professionals and uh, it's called cultural design. And it sounds like it makes sense. When when did the business start? A start for you guys? It started more than a year ago. So it's a year and four months, I believe. 
it's pretty dynamic here. <laughs> you guys are always on the move. It's always hard to get hold of you guys. Olga, I forgot to ask you this because I've got this inherent need in myself to, I think it's old information architecture thing where I want to put someone into a little box. And initially I was going, cool, Olga is a researcher and I put you in a research box, right? But then you've also done some design work. Um, you've worked, you've done some user testing, which is kind of in quotes also research, but how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a designer or are you a researcher, you know, or don't you really care for that kind of title category or categorization of your capabilities? So I think I am still exploring and, uh, really trying to find out what, what is the, the most, what I'm most passionate about. Um, I, I, when I graduated, there is not really a job of cultural economist. There is not like one specific job that a cultural economist does. Sort of mindset or like set of skills and understanding. But also my master's studies were very like research oriented. So I knew that I'm a good researcher. I really had a lot of experience with like quantitative and qualitative studies. So that was my background. And, um, that's that's what I was doing directly after I graduated. But then I went into like a big fascination with design and with the creative work. Now I'm a business owner, so mm-hmm. that's another role. And I think it's better if I don't don't try to put myself into any category and simply like go with what what is what I'm passionate in this moment about and what's really driving me. As you were talking, I also realized that as I'm trying to categorize you, I mean, you're probably also now primarily a business owner. And uh, we, we were joking around earlier, but how does it feel running your own business? It's great. Actually, I really love it. It's the best thing. It's you are in charge of your own time. You are in charge of who you want to work with, what kind of people you are interested to work with. You are in charge of where you work in terms of space, in terms of the country you're in. So our agency works very much on remote basis. We are here in Berlin primarily, but we just returned from like three months in Asia when we traveled traveled around basically Asia and Southeast Asia. And that was really great. It, w- it was really great to have this freedom to explore and get inspired from different cultures and work at the same time. As a cultural economist, it's probably good to go and explore different cultures, right? Else you, you can't just be stuck in one. <laughs> I think it's as anybody or with any title, it's really great to explore different cultures. I'm just trying to give you an excuse <laughs> to travel lots. So when I looked at your website, culture.design, there's a statement on the site that says cultural brands have the power to trigger cultural transformation. What does this mean? So this statement is very much inspired by the writing of Douglas Holt, who came up with this theory of cultural brands. And by cultural brands, he basically means brands that are iconic in culture and are able to not only detect relevant changes and movements in the culture and respond to that, but also they influence culture. So another another inspiration for this statement and the writing in the culture section of our website was this consultancy, New York-based consultancy called Sparks and Honey. I don't think it's very well known in Europe, but I uh, accidentally basically discovered them. And what they do is they really specialized on culture tracking. So they, uh, they have this um, kind of live videos, daily live videos when they discuss what's happening in the culture right now. Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's daily culture briefing. My name is Merlin Ward, and today we're looking at culture in the horizontal and across industries. By doing this daily, we're able to identify patterns and trends in consumer behavior. Joining me today is Ben Grinspan and our table of staff. 
And then they go uh, to different brands and they consult how how can new design or a new communication strategy of that brand res- respond to the new developments in our culture. So considering that there are so many trends and movements in our culture, especially recently because of the new technologies or just simply very dynamic events that are happening and really changing our perspectives. Exactly. I mean, the thing is, would it, would it kind of equate to, um, I mean, sorry, I know you're still in your train of thought here, but when you were talking about this, I was thinking about this recent ad by Nike, Nike, mm-hmm. uh, where they uh, featured this Copernic guy. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if you've seen that ad, but they kind of, the brand itself positions it with this they're taking a stand for some kind of statement that this guy is making the controversial quarterback colin kaepernick announced a multi-year extension of his nike contract with this tweet believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything and with that the sportswear company sought to insert itself into a political firestorm with the goal of grabbing national attention it kind of sounds like what you're referring to is that brands aren't just kind of now following culture or trying to fit into a culture, they are creating a culture or supporting a certain point of view. Yes, exactly. So Ben & Jerry's, I think, is like the iconic example of this behavior of brands really engaging into public discourse about even even political events. Yeah. So that's very interesting to see that. But on the other hand, there is this very interesting idea of ontological design, which basically means that whatever we design turns around and design us. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's also a little bit scary. It's a bit scary, but if you realize that and you have that in mind, your your designs and your, your decisions can impact culture. Like a simple example would be like a smartphone designer. If, if people who designed smartphones ever imagined that people having dinner now in a restaurant, they simply just stare at the phones. Exactly. Like what, what happens if you start thinking like how our designs, our products, our services influence like human to human interactions and if implemented on like mass scale what kind of culture are we creating when steve jobs and these guys designed the iphone if they realized that people would be like leaning in like this i mean just spend some time on a metro right and you just see people on their smartphones yes the reason i think it's a scary thought is that i mean i think initially when the guys designed the phone of course they thought about the platform and how they can make money and all these interesting things. They probably didn't think, think about the human behavior changing, how we were getting stuck or going to get stuck on our phones. But now, I mean, recently this whole conversation came up about screen time, right? So Google and Apple and Facebook and all these guys need to take responsibility of how much people actually spend on their devices. So they need to now think about that third impact of what they're creating is that people are sitting on their stuff all the time. But the thing is that also reflects back that I could probably design for that, right? I can, I know I'm going to create this intermediate solution, but my ultimate goal is actually to get people stuck on something. That's a terrifying thought. Yeah. I hope some dodgy people aren't listening to our podcast and hires, <laughs> hires you to come do this for them. <laughs> Let's stick on this topic of culture, right? So design through the lens of culture. You are working really hard around this concept of cultural design. Designing through the lens of culture, like what culture is this? Yeah, I think there are many different meanings of culture and that may be confusing. I mean, there is high culture and low culture and that refers purely to the arts. But you use the word culture in a sense to to distinguish between different countries. But there's culture simply as 
a set of values and beliefs and common behaviors in a group of people. Yeah. So I think looking through the lens of culture in this in this case is trying to really deeply understand the values and designing with like very very deep understanding of w- what are the trends and movements yeah. in the culture, what are the values and what is the impact that we are bringing with our designs. And then how does design fit into this? Does does your research or the work that you're doing dictate the design? Does it create a hypothesis? Um, what what value does this bring to the design process? So maybe I will give you like a simple example. We um, recently had this client uh, who is in the content creation industry and he wanted to, to create his brand around this idea of like masculinity. It was supposed to be like very tough, very masculine brand. Manly men. So we stopped a little bit and we asked him about the team and did a lot of workshops about his values and what is the company standing for. And we realized that in the company, actually, they're, they're like 90, 95% men. And uh, we like stopped him a little bit and um, talked to him about like what's going on actually in the industry or in the culture and told him about that there is this idea now of, of like toxic masculinity and we are in a moment of defining what is the new masculinity and maybe it's not the rough, tough, dark masculinity anymore and that we are moving as a culture into different definitions. So maybe it wouldn't be as attractive as he perceives that it could be. That is so interesting. It's one idea, like one example of observing the culture and then applying this knowledge, this cultural knowledge into designing brands. What you're doing can actually help you get ahead of the curve, right? When you started talking about your client and this example that you're talking about, I was thinking about the camel man. The broad-shouldered gentleman you see lighting a camel is Robert Merrill, star of opera and television. Like so many singers I know, I smoke camels. I can't take chances with my voice. I have to have a cigarette that agrees with my throat and you're right it is changing the whole idea on masculinity is changing but you're not perhaps entirely sure where it's going it's still getting shaped but this brand that you work with this client that that works that you work for could potentially play a role in shaping that right or be actively involved in discovering this am i understanding that correctly Yes, exactly. And there is another another side to it. Is the side that when, when you observe culture and observe what what's happening, you you shape your own opinion and you shape your own scenario for ideal future or ideal shape of culture. And I don't think that's wrong. I mean, it's it's great. You you have your values and you observe and judge. And then if a client comes comes to us and says something that is opposed to the the values and the views. We can try to convince them, but sometimes it, it doesn't work. So that's another side of like cultural responsibility when you say, well, your idea will not contribute to the shift in culture that I, I am, I would be happy to build together. With another colleague of mine, we've trying to, we've been exploring this whole idea of the experience economy and experiences. And when we work there, it feels to me a lot like, um, Experience, for example, is going right to the core of that of you as as an individual. The me, uh, it's about what what I want, my customization specifically for me. But the interesting thing for me about culture, though, is culture is also an element that groups people, right? Um, yes, it is a it's a collective feeling. It's not 
just me. It, it allows me to be in a group of people and feel comfortable about it. Yes, exactly. That's that's also something that I was thinking about a lot is that we are usually testing users and thinking about users and thinking about this individual humans with their just without a context, basically. But if we start thinking about groups and start thinking about exactly interactions between those humans, then, then I think we would start designing differently. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it also makes me feel a little bit nervous, right? Sometimes because there's also like, I think people confuse culture with like nationalism or something. It's like this group feeling like I, I need to, I, I belong to this flag or I belong to this, but that's not culture, right? In a way it is. It is national culture. It's, it's also culture. But I, I think just uh, j- just values in the community, that, that's, that's the definition I would go for. I was in a meeting with a client recently where we had a very candid discussion because we actually on the, in the process of defining um, some of their segmentation of the people that or the customers that they have. I mean, we, it's too broad at the moment. We want to kind of work a little bit on that. And in the meeting, the guy just piped up. Oh, and I'm I'm changing some of the stuff here. It's like, oh, um, our Russian customers don't do X, Y, and Z. And for a minute, and maybe it's my South African background because we kind of try and avoid that kind of stuff. But I, I felt, oh, I felt a bit uncomfortable because how can you say that so broadly about all the Russians, right? I mean, that's a, that's a whole broad people set. But what I'm hearing from you is that you can make certain assumptions around people as a group like that. Yes. I mean, I understand your mixed feelings connected to this national context. But yeah, I think it's just about this, thinking about this collectivity. And I think also because we are focusing on these individuals, we design products and experiences and services for individuals. Yeah. And we don't think of the connections that those individuals uh-huh. will make to each other. But uh, going back to the Russian culture, <laughs> <laughs> I, I read a very interesting research recently how it is actually not only Russian culture, but also Polish culture, culture col- national cultures that are based in this kind of strong collective feeling. They behave differently. So I think, I believe the, the research was around choices and decision-making process. Okay. And they made an experiment in uh, Poland and Russia and the United States. They had a group of kids and they had three versions of this experiment. In the first one, uh, they asked the kids to draw whatever they want to draw. In the second version, they told them, your mom asked you to draw a specific thing. And in the third version, they they said, uh, this teacher or this assistant told you to write a specific, uh, to draw a specific thing. And then they measured the level of satisfaction. So it turned out that in the US, the kids were very satisfied with their work when they chose the topic themselves, like very much. There was a huge difference. And then whoever told them to do something, in that version, they weren't really happy with what they drew. And uh, in in Russia and in Poland, the situation was completely different. So when the, uh, even there was a kid who who went to the, to the uh, guy running the experiment and said, Please say thank you to my mom for giving me such a nice topic to to draw. So it was completely <laughs> fake, so cool. but he didn't realize it. And that was actually yeah. like they were most satisfied with the drawing that they did when it, they were told that it was the mom that gave them the task. Uh-huh. So it, this confirms that it's a completely different way of thinking. I mean, I always knew about localization, but I, you know, when you do design, you have to localize for 
you know, for different countries in some context, right? But I didn't know that it can actually go that deep. Now, for a complete layman like myself, who just understands user testing, user interviews, and some usability testing, how do you do cultural design? How can I how can I get into this vibe a little bit and try my hand in understanding culture a little bit? Or maybe explain a little bit about your design process. One, one thing that we are doing, it's basically the culture tracking. We are really trying to understand well, what's going on and where are we heading. So that's something that we are doing. And then we are really focusing on the values and going deeper into what, what, what the specific products or brands, what kind of values they, they communicate. And, and that's the culture shifting. It's like looking at analytics. You are constantly looking at how things are shifting to, to understand where it's going. Yes, it's, it's more like the lens. Exactly. It's just the specific mindset and specific like set of thoughts and goals. And then you you look for that. These are all interesting things. And I'm very interested in, to know more. And you need to teach me some of this stuff. I'll pay you. <laughs> but no, I'm not going to pay you. So, you know, what, what is the typical clients that your agency actually get to work with? So we have the whole range of clients from like different industries and uh, different locations. So we work with like small startups and also with like big corporations from like, security projects to finance, blockchain projects. Yes. So and then we also work with like art festivals, classical music projects, orchestras, like experimental art, immersive events. So it's, it's the whole range. And I think that's the beauty of it, because every time you like jump from one industry to another, you learn a lot and you learn to interact with those different cultures of those exactly. institutions, right? And organizations. It's fascinating. It's a huge learning experience. Yeah. But, but also consider this poor guy who's trying to be a researcher asking this question to you right now. And I'm trying to categorize you guys in some way. But what I'm hearing from you, the net's quite wide. I mean, you guys are doing anything with anyone. So maybe I can flip the question around like this, right? Because I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to pigeonhole you guys into something, but I mean, <laughs> but it's not working, Olga. Is how, how do you find your clients? So when we started, we really wanted to sit down and write down our like marketing strategy and we were prepared to do some marketing investment and efforts. But then we started noticing that actually giving business cards at events and talking to friends and talking to friends of friends brings us all the, all the clients. So this is a strategy we are going for now. And it's really funny because our friends are from all over the world. So we are working from like New York to Australia, a lot of projects in Berlin, but yeah, also all over Europe. Olga, just remember, I'm one of your friends, right? <laughs> yes, we are friends indeed. <laughs> it's just like always looking for business. I'm being an idiot. Shameless for promotion. Yeah, it's a little self. Exactly. I mean, you've, you've told us a little bit about one or two of the examples of work you've done, right? But maybe you can, can you share like an interesting story or two about an interesting project that you've done? I really liked working on the blockchain project. It is a blockchain exchange where you can exchange cryptocurrency to actual goods like gold and stocks. So it, it was a really fascinating journey because when we started, we had no idea about blockchain. And we got to learn not only about the technology and its like impact and implications, but also how the people work and what are the mindsets. So blockchain is a is based around the idea of decentralization, and people really like to work in this decentralized ways. Uh, so we actually worked with like four different blockchain projects so far, and one of the projects wanted to implement this decentralization on an organizational level. 
Whoa, okay. So it was really fascinating to see how they are trying to make decisions, how they are using like simple things like servers and payments, how every single step of their organization was basically decentralized. It's insane. And uh, yeah, the thing is, um, I did not think that this interview is going to be going into the blockchain world, right? Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, I get the idea around decentralization and I think it, 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 it has value. Um, but the application for me is still a little bit vague. However, do you see, and this is the question is, do you see the hype um, that is currently around um, blockchain? Do you think the, this technology is going to live up to that hype? According to the work that you've done now, like, do you see there's momentum behind this movement? Um, do you think it's going to grow more? Is there potential? Yes. So for the past like six months, I've been very excited about the, the idea of blockchain. And then I realized that I'm very biased, not only because we are working with the blockchain products and clients in the space, but just in Berlin, I think people are very enthusiastic about blockchain and many people from all over Europe are moving to Berlin just to like pursue the blockchain ambitions. And uh, so there is a lot of hype, a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of people working in the in the topic uh, here in Berlin. Uh, but then I went for um, a reunion of my master in, to Rotterdam and, uh, and they were very skeptical about the idea of blockchain or having it implemented in any way. I think like there is a huge issue with understanding of lo- what blockchain is and explaining it to people how it works. So there is also a huge UX problem when it comes to cryptocurrencies and the applications that work on blockchain. People simply don't understand and it's not easy to understand how this works with all the private key, public key, all the steps that you need to know so it's a completely different world but on the other hand i mean if if you ask somebody who is in the space what what do you say to people who are skeptical they say well people were skeptical about internet at the beginning too nobody understood how it's or about database it's the same thing it's just a way of transmitting information in a secure way okay here's a trick question how do you think blockchain could help creatives and designers yeah i recently discovered this really great project called creative chain and it's like a behance youtube and spotify on blockchain it's a decentralized creative community when you can where you can share your your creations whether it's music or movie or visual art or design and it's basically your your creation is licensed and you have like control over access and ownership and you get it's very interesting i've been told though that you are looking into future applications and you're actually actively looking into blockchain more for like doing some of your own projects yeah i think i would i mean seeing all the skepticism especially in the industry i am passionate about which is art and creative industries uh i i would really like to basically dig into it more and maybe try to convince the the skeptics yeah so it would it would be more of a writing slash research project looking forward to that you are creating a network of experts. Can you tell me about the Cultural.Institute? Yes, it's a new project that I'm starting with my uh, fellow alumni of cultural economics. Basically, it's a really great bunch of people, very talented. They are working in uh, different fields. Like some of them, they do marketing for national museums. Some of them work with like jazz networks. Some of them do like 
podcasts and civil society organizations. And we are starting this network of experts and we will be doing research and consulting in creative industries. What is the timeline of that? Is, is, is it still kind of in its uh, prototyping or when is this launching? The prototyping, prototyping phase for sure. We just met a month ago and we, we launched them and we decided to start it. So we are building it in the background. It's happening for sure. We will probably launch it next month. How can I find out more about it? Where, where, where can we find information about it? For now, it's coming soon. But in in few weeks, it will be at www.cultural.institute. The Block Thinking Podcast is brought to you with the support of Seed Cards, an inspirational creative tool for experience design. About 80% of companies worldwide think they are customer-centric. Only 8% of their customers agree. Get inspired by the best customer experiences from leading brands such as Disney, Netflix, and Southwest Airlines. Seed Cards will challenge you and your team to break with convention. They will encourage you to develop ideas that will resonate with your customers in a meaningful way. Visit www.seedcards.com or www.seedcards.pl to download a free sample. Get inspired to create unique experiences for your customers. Thank you, KD. Oh, by the way, I don't know if you guys know, this wonderful American voice is actually a good friend of mine, an artist, Katie Zazinski. Uh, Katie is sending you much love there in the United States. But as Katie highlighted, uh, customer experience is important and we are partnering with the guys at Seedcards, my good friend Agus Rustek, and we are giving you a discount for a purchase on either the English or the Polish versions of the Seedcards. In fact, uh, my deck found its way to South Africa. Shout out to my friend Yusuf, who is now currently using the deck. Um, that means that I'll also be utilizing this promo code, uh, promo code block space thinking, so B-L-O-C space thinking at the website gazetetrenera.pl, link in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your next purchase of the seed cards. I highly recommend them. They rock. They're awesome. They've got some workshop tips uh, and then all kinds of insights that will inspire your attendees. So go out, grab them and enjoy them. And now back to the show. Let's let's step away a little bit from all the economics and business and we go into art. Is that possible? <laughs> step away from that. After what you've just told me, we can't, can never step away from all these things. But um, I mean, you probably deny this, but I understand that you're also a little bit of an artist. I mean, aren't we all? What is art in your mind? Like the creation of art? Um, is it a separate thing? Because some people say art should be in galleries or um, is art for anybody? Yeah, that's a very tough question. I think there is no one good answer to that. I, I have a very romantic view of what artist is. I think artists are like very superhumans, true humans that have the ability to think freely, uh, create their own values, create their own ideas, whether they are weird or silly and work with something they really believe in. And that's basically how I perceive artists. And I think we can really learn from this process of like, not not even childlike play, but simply having this personal connection to whatever you're doing and bringing yourself into and putting yourself and, and just being very personal about it and caring about it. And also allowing this creative process of like pondering what is important to you or what you want to focus on and pursuing that. And I found, actually I was... I uh, found a lot of people who share this idea of 
we could connect art to to like to use art or utilize art in different ways. There is this book called as uh, Art as Therapy. I believe it's by Alain de Botton. He's the co-author of it. So that's one way to think of like how can we how how can art play a bigger role in society? But there is another side to the story, which is like, how can we connect art and innovation? Which is really fascinating to me. I I uh, attended this really interesting workshop by a very talented artist and engineer. He's Japanese. His name is Taishi Kamiya. And he developed a process called art interaction design, which is an alternative to design thinking. What do you see? Questions produce new creations. Disruptive innovations in an industry are born of better questions. On the industry scene, the methodology which creates value by defining a problem and then resolving problems, called the design process, is often used to produce innovation. Design has the power to solve problems. However, because the design process finds problems and produces ideas to solve them, it is sometimes unable to create new value without being attached to existing problems. This is why art interaction design was invented. What is the difference between design and art? Design has the power to solve problems, while art has the power to raise questions. Art interaction design is intended to produce disruptive innovation in the industry by enhancing the existing design process. It allows us to discover new value by using an artistic perspective to produce questions. Yeah, you start with, you don't have a goal of problem solving or going from A to B, but you focus on creating questions that you're excited to focus on. So it's really a tool for radical innovation. And it focuses a lot the process on techniques to ask yourself the right question, the question that will really drive you to discover. And this like very similar idea I found in a book called Art Thinking. This, uh, this lady called Emmy uh, Whitaker from the States. She wrote, she wrote this book. She also uh, she writes a lot about this connection between commerce and art. So she wrote about the practice of art thinking and what, what does it mean and how you have to practice it, how you need to have your studio time, how you have to develop this big question to work on and how to basically be an artist, but apply it to the commercial world. Super compelling. Um, I've, I've been reading the books of Roberto Verganti. The one is Design Driven Innovation. What his whole thing is that design thinking is really about solving problems. And it's not about innovation because if you do innovation, you really try and find interesting things that you want to solve. Do you think there's, there's going to be a shift in, in, in the design space around this? Because I think everybody, and I'm not running design thinking down, but I think everybody's kind of like design thinking is a silver bullet. There has to be something new that we will follow and we get fascinated with. For me, it's definitely about around this idea of implementing something from, from the art process to create something original. Uh, I was talking to a friend designer who explained to me how that he's not really personally involved in his projects. He's a UI designer. And I asked him, but it's creative work. It's your work. I mean, you're, you're designing it. And, and, and he said, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing that for, for a client. So it's not, it's not really mine. It's not really my work. And I said, if you were, if you were writing a book for a publisher, wouldn't be, would you be like, wouldn't you also, wouldn't you get really personal about it? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be your book? 
So then he he kind of pondered and we didn't we didn't agree and I didn't understand his perspective. So it's not my design. It is for the client. When you say things like that, people like Donald Trump gets voted in. I'm serious. It's like <laughs> it's not it's not my design. Yes, it's sure. not my responsibility to be careful about data. It's not my responsibility to do things like this. I mean, I don't want to run your friend down. I mean, I understand why, because sometimes we do certain shitty jobs and we have to do things, right? I, I get super passionate about it because if you're going to be in the space of design, and if, in fact is, I think everybody is ultimately a designer. No matter what you do, if you're in the act of creating things, you need to take responsibility for it. Like it's, I mean, and also I kind of hate the word responsibility because it, it sounds a bit wanky too, but it's for, more, yeah. for me more about, um, there's nothing worse than, I mean, I remember when I was at art school. Oh, I didn't know. I, I studied fine arts. It was my first hey. thing in, uh, as a, I'm a sculptor. But the thing is, I, I, for me, the whole thing about art is not the work that I created, but what I learned there. And the most vulnerable thing that you can ever feel is after you've created something, a piece of work, and someone comes past you who's probably, you know, and, and interprets that work, and then they critique that. And, the, 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 you know, like you can't shift that responsibility. I created this stinky mess <laughs> or this awesome piece of work. Or also like there's a subjectivity when someone critiques work too, right? But ultimately, I'm responsible for this thing here. And I want this thing to be so I want someone to buy it, right? Because I want to, I want to have it in someone's house potentially. And then when I, I mean, I know a lot of my artist friends also don't really agree because they think for them, uh, art is this magical thing that happens behind closed doors, and that's their thing. But I think it's broader. And and if I have to take something out of the art world, is that you know there is this thing about you that I, I mean, the only way I can describe is like you said, well, guys, like you inject something of yourself. I mean, when I speak to you and I speak to Chris your partner in the company, I feel like you guys really inject yourselves into the work. I mean, it's like, you guys are like really crazy. I mean, I've worked with you guys around the extraordinary college. You're really like intense about the work that you put out because ultimately, yes, it is this client's elements, but still there's your fingerprint on that work. Yeah, but there is also the way, I, I, I've been thinking about happiness at work and how can you be, engaged yeah and happy how can you be like have the feeling of really personal satisfaction if you are not engaged with your work if you don't claim claim the ownership of that work life is too short to be mediocre yeah second thing i want to talk about brutalist design tell me about yes. it so brutalist design is this counter movement in web design that goes against the standard rules of web design. It's about experimenting, being sarcastic. It's about using different types of spacing than standard. It's about not caring about templates, UI kits. It's about not following the rules, basically. And it's about trying something new, trying something that is different and that hasn't been done before. Uh, so the concept originated... I think in the context of architecture in like post-war France, I believe. And it was a, at that time, it was a counter movement to the Art Deco, I think, very beautiful ornamental style. And Brutalist architecture is this very concrete architecture with simple geometric forms. So it was about this simplicity, bringing back architecture to like people. And that that's how the concept started in the architecture field. And uh, then a few years ago, I think about 
2014, this website called brutalistwebsites.com was started by a Swiss designer. His name is Pascal Deville. And um, so what he does is just he's just publishing different examples of brutalist design that he finds around the web and interviews people behind the projects. So it's very fascinating. I really it's hard to talk about brutalist design because it's such a playful yeah. thing. I uh, can't really describe it. So I encourage everybody who's interested to simply go to You the- have to Google it. I mean, when I was doing the research, <laughs> I actually Googled it and I, I, I worked with a designer and I said to him, hey, Andy, check this out. And he's like, like his face was going all in these different spaces. But I don't know, when I looked at it, I, I, found, I found it very refreshing. It's like... It's so yeah, fresh, it's like, right? It's such a different different way of doing things. Olga, why are you drawn to it? Like, I mean, you like, you talk so passionately about it. Like, what is in it? I cannot explain it. Just, it's a drug. It's a d- design drug. <laughs> I need to have more brutalists. No, it comes back to this idea of like being being free and being free to yeah. experiment and being yeah being free to not follow all the rules just to follow your. I think instincts. it also feels a little bit like it's accessible. Yeah, it I is mean, definitely. these days when people talk about web, it's like this kit, like you said, that kit, that plugin. I mean, I was a developer in the eighties, right? And now I feel like, hey, I can use my skills again. <laughs> exactly. That's it. It's uh, people who don't know how to use those yeah. modern tools. They can simply start yeah. doing it. And I think it's great. It's such a like democratizing. But there is a trick to it though. There is. I saw, I mean, I looked at one or two of them and there was like one or two really dodgy ones and then some of them. And then you did one, right? You did one for a, uh, for, tell yeah. us about that because I liked your one. Your one was quite solid. Really? Yeah, I, I was impressed. Yeah, so we had this project. It was an experimental art festival that basically focused, it, it was organized for the anniversary of Dadaism in Berlin. And it was also around this idea of metadata. So it was called Metadata. Metadata, yeah. <laughs> and the website is tadada.me. Indeed uh, it is. <laughs> Uh, we, we try to create an identity that would really illustrate the absurdism of, of that festival, of things that will be happening there, on of the technology that will be showcased there and the experiences. So we couldn't go for anything standard. We really like there was no that wasn't even an option to like create a simple, clean, well measured landing page mm. with sleek nice user. headshots with phone <laughs> numbers and dates. Yeah. So, and I had this really growing curiosity about front-end development and I really wanted to try my skills and, I mean, I had zero skills, but uh, try try it. So I I started developing this website. It's going to be blocky and it's going to be funky. It doesn't have to be perfect. And uh, yeah, and this is how it happened. Tada. Tada.me. Boom. Gather around, kids. It's story time. So I'm going to give you a story challenge and I'm going to read off a challenge for you and you have to tell a story. But the, the trick is, is that it doesn't have to be the truth. It's just, I want to see how you tell a story. So here's the, here's the card. Tell a story about a time when you felt lucky. Okay. Um, so we were traveling in uh, Bali on scooters a few months ago and we rented, we weren't prepared for a long trip. Basically, we rented really, really bad scooters. I mean, not bad. They were just very small. We were two people with luggage. We decided to travel for a few days up, up north on the mountains. So we were trying to go up the hill, but the scooter was really struggling. It was like barely going up. And so it was us and our friends on another scooter, four people. And suddenly we got started. Surrounded by this like 
local team of guys and we were like very very skeptical about what's going to happen if they surround us like that up the mountain mm. so it started raining a little bit and the guys basically told us you have no chance like in front of you the mountain is so steep there's like no chance you can can go through that so um they proposed that the girls would go on the scooters of the locals and the boys will follow so we did that. <laughs> that sounds completely irrational. So right? with <laughs> like, this, yeah. But when you are there and you're like traveling and adventures, you don't really think that it's irrational. You just kind of, you have to go through that mountain. Uh, so I was going on the scooter of this uh, local guy and uh, I looked at his level of gas and it was zero. And then I looked at the speedometer and it was zero. So nothing was working at all. And we were going really fast on a very steep mountain. But after like 20 minutes, we arrived. Safe and sound. And I felt that I was very lucky. I think so. I mean, you feel, you feel alive again. <laughs> yeah. Olga, thanks for that story. Being Olga, um, and you're, you're a woman in the design world, is there specific challenges that you face? Um, I mean, I, um, a few months ago, I was attending this conference. I was planning to attend this conference in Berlin. It was a technology conference. And I saw that they uh, published a contest, like a giveaway ticket for, for women. So you, have to, you had to fill up a form and you had a chance to win a ticket. So the form basically said, tell us about the situation when you felt discriminated or describe challenges you faced as a woman. And uh, so I, I wrote a story there and I, I won the ticket and I met I met a few of my girlfriends at the conference and they told me they also won a ticket. And one of them said, but it's such a terrible way. I mean, we are women, and but we also do great work. Like, why aren't we asked about our work, what we do well, what we do to like deserve to be there, or what are our passions or anything like that. And that's such a such a good question i mean chris also won a ticket to the same conference but his his uh, his form said like what do you do best what is what are you great at such a difficult topic because i mean i, I mean for, for one thing that i'm struggling with is that and, and this is why i also ask a lot of my guests this is that um it's actually not up to women to solve the problem i mean what i'm trying to say is like men should solve the problem you don't have a problem you're just trying to do business and be treated equally like everybody else but it's from our side that we need to to act better. So in a way, with you like trying to get a free ticket, talking about where you about these things is actually not 100% fair. But maybe maybe the movement should be about being a bit more sensitive around the speakers that we have at events. That 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 mix is as as proper and inspiring for for everybody. Um, so it's not just a bunch of white old men sitting there talking about business, but a broader subset. And I think a lot of things are changing. I don't want to turn the, my little podcast into a political conversation, but I still, I believe that there's, there's, there's a shit load of work still need to be done. Definitely. Excellent. And then um, we did mention that you live in Berlin, right? So um, from Suwalki and then ultimately for now, because it sounds like you guys are going to be on the move again, uh, you are located in Berlin. Like, um, will you ever yeah. come back to Poland or what is it that draws you to Berlin? Is it just the magic of the technology or is there something cool that keeps you there? I think Berlin is an amazing city. I think it's it might be the best city in the world. For me, it's like, especially is really amazing because it has this post-communist Eastern European vibe to it in terms of architecture, but also people. And it has this great link to the West. Like there's so many young people from like all over Western Europe, from, from the US, from Australia. 
and they bring and they change like they bring their businesses they bring their skills and they completely change what's going on in the scene so as you mentioned there is like the tech industry is great it's vibrant people are really open to like share skills and share experiences it's a great community and there is like so much art going on it's it's really amazing it's such a place of free people people that really value community have like redefined the idea of what is quality life with like public space like you see people who are taking their chairs and going to the park and simply having picnic with their friends and family like a party in the public space it, it's really amazing so there's so many great sites to sit in yeah i really like this here Who inspires you? My personal mentor is my business and life partner, Chris Scarlett, who really drives me to like be better leader, be more confident, teaches me about design a lot. So he's a great mentor. I owe him a lot. There is another mentor who is a female mentor. Uh, her name is Chimamanda Adichie, and she's a Nigerian writer who has amazing ideas. He's very talented. I really like her writing her short stories. She was called basically by the community a feminist writer and she has this really powerful ideas about what is femininity and yeah I, I usually go for inspiration to her. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. And then Olga, what are you currently reading? Yeah, I'm reading this book published in Berlin. It's called What love got to do with that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's a book of this uh, very artistic and philosophical essays about the state of current affairs and yeah, I find it very interesting. And there is an essay by Slavoj Žižek which is very interesting. You just mentioned mentioned essays and it triggered something that I forgot to ask you. Is that I you recently also finished the essay that's going to be included in the book, right? Yes, it's actually the essay about arts and innovation. And that's going to be included in a, a publication soon. Yes, the article will be included in a book, which is the final conclusion of a project called Universal C. And uh, this project is uh, run by this um, organization based in Berlin, which is called the Institute for Art and Innovation. And they decided to solve the uh, problem of microplastic, bringing together academics and the industry, startups, entrepreneurs and artists to create this very broad communication and problem solving skills and data and abstract thinking together. Interesting. Congratulations. Excited to get my hands on a copy of that. And then, Olga, if we want to follow your activities, snoop on you, keep an eye on you, how do people get hold of you? What is the best way to track you down? You can send me an email. Uh, so it's olga at cultural.design. I'm also on LinkedIn. And you don't tweet. But I have an Instagram Aha. account, which is a collection of Berlin graphics. So Berlin posters. Mostly. I think that is interesting. Ber at Berlin.graphics. Berlin.graphics. Great. I'll go find that. Olga, before I say thank you to you and show you respect, we have this other little thing that I'm introducing. It's my passing it forward question. Because I'm a lazy interviewer, I want you to, I want <laughs> you to help me figure out a question for the next uh, guest that's going to be on Block Thinking. So is there something that Olga would want to know from my future mystery next show guest? I was asked this very tricky question once at a job interview a few years ago, and it was, would you have any ethical concerns working for our company? And I was really puzzled with this question and how, with this question and how to answer that and what does it mean? Um, but it made me think, deeply about going like working in line with your own values 
So I think I would spread this question. <laughs> Thank you for that. I'm going to add that. Great. Olga, you spend some time with me and I know you guys are super busy. I just want to say massive thank you for doing this and being on my little humble podcast. Also, what I want to say, and I want to add one thing, Olga, like the thing is you are an awesome designer. You are, however, way too humble. Um, there's, you are doing amazing things and I hope in this show we do you a lot of justice. I want to wish you all best of luck with the projects that you mentioned during this interview. And then also, once again, congratulations for the things that you've already achieved. And yeah, I hope to catch you and Chris and also send much love to the big guy. I hope to catch you guys here in Poland sometime when you come visit again um, or maybe in Berlin. But thank you very much for doing this. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Block Thinking. You can find more information and the show notes for this episode at www.blockthinking.com. That is blockthinking without the K.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on iTunes or any of your favorite podcast platforms. We thrive on critique, so feel free to leave comments on iTunes or get hold of us directly. Thanks for listening. Second thing I want to talk about brutalist design. Tell me about yes. it. Brutalist design is like a counter movement in web design against standard 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 standardization standardization. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! I, I start over. Standard stand. My God, I that's, a, even that's a crazy word. Stand standardization. Standard, yeah. Uh, what is the other word for standardization? What we can use? Unification, no. Guidelines and... No. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice.